Are you coming Okay, we're ready to begin. Sorry for the delay. We have it all taped. Everything is now uh, hopefully working. Our topic for today is a very intriguing one, a very striking one. And rare is it the class that is willing to, in fact, engage in this kind of a discussion, as you'll see as we go along. The way that Michelle and I, except responsibly, formulated is the rejectionists full of the state of Israel. We want to understand their position. We want to speak to them. No, no. We formulate it in a way that you would think it's a misprint. <clears throat> we do want to speak about the rejectionists, those who hate the state of Israel. Of course, we're going to state at the outset. Clearly, we support the state of Israel. Our support is deep and passionate. Our support is based on good Jewish philosophical thinking. But <clears throat> in an issue as critical, as important, as significant as this, one is that we should all study our sources very well. That's critically important, objectively. As well, we should always be willing to open the dialogue, always to speak. We want to study the Jewish historical, the Jewish sources, historical trends, and come to see whether or not the conclusions that we made are in fact appropriate. It's always right. It's always right when you take important issues in every area of life to analyze, reanalyze, reunderstand, and decide the question. <clears throat> Does Hashem reject or support the state of Israel? That's the key question. Is it viewed as a blessing or is it viewed as a curse? Does Hashem bless or damn the state of Israel? That's a key, thank you. That's a key question that we have to raise. The study of our sources will of course give us a certain direction, a position to take. Many great minds have studied these sources and strikingly they've come to opposite conclusions. We want to try to analyze both sides. There are two possibilities. Why can you both read the same text and come to two opposite conclusions? Obviously that's true in many areas of life. You both could read the same text, you and your husbands for example, and come to two opposite conclusions. You could hear a lecture, comes to opposite conclusions about any single issue, whatever it may be. You can hear the same exact information and come to two opposite conclusions. Now, why is that the case? And of course, what I'm going to say now applies to many areas of life. The mind can come to the question with a predisposition and therefore he makes his sources say what he wants it to say. Let's say your husband comes to an issue, let's say like spending money, very conservatively or cheaply like me. So whatever question, whatever text we're going to read is all going to be read through my lenses, spend less is best. That's my motto in life, right? Do without. That's the way I was raised, my parents came from a depression era kind of mentality, so of course close lights when you leave the room. Don't the intelligence on when you leave the room. That's where I'm coming from. Better to go for a walk in Central Park than go to a $200 play. Right? That's me. And I pride myself on saying that I spent less in courting Emily in, for three years that we went out than most of my Syrian congress spend in one day. <laughs> and I am not exaggerating. Not exaggerating. We have proof of that. So I come with a certain predisposition towards this. Is this being taped now? And I'm proud of it. And certainly, however I conduct life right now, Emily knows from whence I come. There was pre-warning. Right? Forewarned is forearmed. Forearmed is forewarned. Both are true. So in any case, there's a predisposition over here. How I approach whatever we're going to talk about. So it makes her job much much harder in trying to convince me to 
get back and examine my predisposition. We're not living any longer during the Depression age, and phones are a means of communication, so therefore don't stand up, you can stand up for two hours, because you need to establish rest by phones nowadays. In my day, if we went one minute over the minimum, we had to uh, be we punished. We had to pay a price for that. One minute over the minimum. Minimum was seven and a half dollars. My phone bill right now is three hundred dollars. So I learned a few lessons along the way. What's important about talking on the phone between siblings or parents and children, or whatever the case may be. But I came with a predisposition, and therefore, whatever came to, to my attention, I read it in a certain way. You read the text with a predisposition rather than allowing the text to speak to you. That's one possibility, right? This is a situation where the hashkafa or outlook, affects the halakha, so to speak. Your answer, my answer, let's say I come to a, a women's issue in halakha with a negative view of women in that I feel that they really want to change the whole system, they're very uh, a miserable lot of people, and therefore, whatever question they come to, whatever source they come to, well, how am I going to read that, those sources? Different than how they read these sources. So they're going to have to tell, tell, tell me, read the sources. Don't tell me your predispositions or how you approach it, but just read the sources, objectively and honestly. Says yes, it's yes. Says no, it's no. Finished. And they may be very honest women about it, but my predisposition puts me into a, have a certain perspective on all this. Right? Let's say a woman comes to me and says, I must go to the beauty parlor on Shabbat. It's very important. So I open up the book. I say, look, read the book. You can't go to the beauty parlor on Shabbat. She says, well, and now she will give me five reasons why that does not apply to her. <laughs> Shalom Bayit, I've looked pretty for my neighbors, my husband. Uh, that was when before they had superstar beauty parlors 400 years ago. She will have five different reasons why this did not work for her. So she's reading the sources with her predisposition. I'm saying, open the book, what does it say? This is ham and eggs. Ham and eggs, but even if you like ham a lot, it says no. No, no, you don't understand. That's before ham was viewed, was viewed, that's when ham was viewed as a disease-causing uh, edible food that, problem. Trichinosis, trichina worm, we understand that. Nowadays it's different, but the closest says X. No, you're, missing, you're not seeing it correctly, you're not seeing it right, you're not seeing historical context. So everybody could read the text as they want to, if they have a predisposition. If they like ham. I don't like ham. I don't know why I don't like ham, I just don't like ham. So if it's kosher, I'm not going to eat it. So it's easy for me to say, it says no, too bad. So one possibility when we talk about the state of Israel is that perhaps the great minds have come to the sources with a predisposition. Possibly. That's something we want to consider. Yeah, please. Good point. Very good issue. And everything does. Correct. Good point. But if you analyze, introspect, and uncover the layers of why you have a predisposition, then you come to it more objectively. Meaning, let's say I were to go to, let's say, six months of a professional educational person called the therapist, and they would say that we're having this money issues because I see saving money not for the dollar value, because I see it as a expression of respect to my parents who taught me this lesson. So I say, oh, and then the pressure person says, you know something, you can respect your parents differently, because they don't, they don't care about the money you spend on that was the way they live their lives. We spent them by coming over and having dinner with them, and that might be true. Changing it, because I've uncovered my predispositions. Sometimes we're not even aware of our predispositions towards relationships, to how we read a text, whatever the case may be. A woman might think, I must go to the beauty parlor because my husband said that beauty parloring was, makes you beautiful, it's great, and do your nails, and that's what's really important. So you put your entire relationship based on this, so therefore you have a presumption just because you think you think it's really important. And you go and you discuss it and you have an understanding about what all this is about. And then when you realize and understand what it's all about, you say, you know, Steve is not that important. Because he loves you no matter what you do, you don't do your nails, you don't do your nails. That's that important. And, and he makes it. He doesn't make it Oh, you don't really care about my hair? No, of course not. I just wanted to say how beautiful you are always. So I said it happened to you when you came up from beauty parlor. So when you uncover these predispositions, then you sometimes are able to get at the root and then read the text openly and clearly. If you have no concern one way or the other, you want to eat yogurt at 2 o'clock on Thursday morning. 
helping the book. It says, you know, I don't care one way or the other you do it. So it says you can. So you can. Right? So then I have no presuppositions about that issue. Some issues, especially the highly charged issues, usually have backdrops, families to them, family audiences. So you want to uncover those and you want to try to get it, what the text really says. Now, that's one point. Predispositions, yeah? You know, it's not a bad thing. We can be honest about it. I agree. It could be. But that comes to my next point, okay, which you're we're hinting at. Besides predispositions that we want to become aware of, some sources may actually differ. So either you have differing sources or two honest readings with no predispositions of that text. It might be an open text, an ambiguous text, in quotes. And that makes it interpretable. It makes it interpretable for everybody. For example, a woman has to bring korban hatat, a sin offering, after she has a baby to Bela Mikdash. Strange. Why does she have to bring a sin offering? Very strange. Open, ambiguous text. Now, I have no predisposition. I'm not a Kohen, so I don't care what you bring it home bring it. I'm not a woman, I don't give birth one way or the other, it doesn't make a difference. I guess you know that. So all that, I have no problem with one way or the other. So now I want to understand this text. No predispositions. It's an open, ambiguous text. Now, I read, I try to understand the context. Some rabbis said, because women have such a difficult time in labor, they swore never to have children again because it's so painful, so that's what they said. Many women have uh, confirmed that position to me. Which I understand. You went through a really tough time, 24 hours of Shema Yisrael labor, so you end up saying, no more, that's it. You're the worst human being in the world. I, I forewarned Emily, don't say that about me. I don't care what you're going through. I'm not the worst person in the world. So in this situation, okay, I said, now interestingly, Rabbi is saying, because you refuse to have more children, Qurban Hadad. That's the way the rabbi saw that ambiguous text. The Christian church, interestingly enough, said exactly the opposite. Because they see sex as a sin, do they not? And you had a baby, so you engage in sin, therefore bring a sin offering. They want to limit your children. So look at open, ambiguous text. Each side saw it differently. Church says, prove that there's, you should not have any more children, because children are the products of sin. Every time you have a child, you have a sin. Bring a Qurban Hatat. The rabbis were fighting against that exactly the opposite. They were saying, have more children. Oh, you want more children? Qurban Hatat. You should have to have more children. Two different perspectives on the same exact text. The text itself is ambiguous. No predispositions. Or one might say that you have two differing texts. One has one opinion, one has another opinion. You study one, I study the other, and we have to analyze it. Remember that you have a thousand years of holy texts over here. Starting with the Torah, the Mishnah, the Gemara, the Halakha. So in that thousand years, many rabbis are going to read texts differently. And even your text that you're reading on Harambam, he may have had a predisposition. He is the as X because of his predisposition or his cultural bias or his historical bias. And, and therefore, what are you going to do? Well, you want to say, one says X, what's the reason behind it? And then analyze it. So you have to really put all of this in its right context to get to the truth. Yeah. Maybe. Perhaps. Where was human nature. Like human Good. By studying the immediate context, broader context, the historical context, understanding its positions very clearly, and say, had or didn't have predisposition. I give you a lot of, we're going to come to one of these examples in a few moments about the state of it, so give me a few months, we'll see the context. But, the, but knowing the man, feeling his pulse, understanding where he's coming from will give you that breadth of context to know what he said. He said X, but maybe just a limited X, not a broad X. You see, as we'll see in a few moments, right? Example given. Some sources could be very, very clear. Some sources could be very, very unclear or un ambiguous. Some could be debatable. So the B school of thought, first was predispositions. Now we're saying nobody has any predispositions. You read a text, what does it really say? And either that source is ambiguous, as we will see, or you have Contradictory sources, that could be it as well, correct? Kind of two clear, beautiful answers, just two different sources. Some my interpretation, I hold this, you hold this, I hold A, you hold B. So in that situation, you have to just 
try to see which one is more convincing to you. Clear is that clear so far, right? Good. Example, is cloning allowed? Judaism. So what do we do? Rabbis do we do our home, do our research. We go back to the sources. We read the sources. Mishnah, Gemara, what the, we understand what cloning is all about. It's an ambiguous issue. Some rabbis will say yes, some rabbis will say no. Not because they're predispositions to it, they don't go one way or the other. But they feel that the sources have differing opinions, and I chose one rather than the other. Some might give a very conservative bent, small c, which means what? This is a radical change. I don't like radical changes. Maybe you just grew up in a very disharmonious home, and you're so disharmonious in your home that you need stability. So you apply that to all areas of life. So any radical changes, you can't deal with. As a person, as you being or halakhically. So you, then therefore you say, when in doubt, do without. Don't do any uh, cloning. We don't know enough about it. Okay, that's an interesting position. Uh, respectable. Has some sources which say that. Fine. Is artificial insemination with a donor sperm allowed or not allowed? Jewish law. Man has no sperm, cannot do so, does not work, wife, whatever the case may be. So, modern medicine is wonderful, artificial donation donor sperm, allowed or not allowed? Check your sources. And again comes the question. The sources, are they clear? Are they ambiguous? Are there contradictory sources? All that, to forsake the rabbi, has to weigh. Has to weigh. This way, that way, and come to a conclusion and say A or B. Say maybe yes, maybe not, absolutely, absolutely not. So situations, yes, or not. That's what a forsake does for a living. He tries to weigh all factors and come to a halakhic conclusion. Good. Are there situations where you have a text which is not ambiguous? Clear. Very clear, and yet you will still find people who come with different conclusions. We need to know more of the factors involved over here. Uh, give me a specific example. Only because... Okay, but that's, I need to know that. I mean, I know that many, many texts are ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately. I know they have contradictory texts. There may be two clear texts, but ambig- but contradictory. So you choose Rambam, I choose Shukhan Okay, that's legitimate. Or vice versa. Rambam said it's okay. Who might argue? Who you don't argue the Rambam? So you, you choose the person to rely on the Rambam, for whatever reason you may. Positionally, or whatever the reason may be, you choose to rely on the Rambam. So we need to know specifics, what exactly took place in the historical context and breadth of context, who the person is, and that helps us come to conclusions. Good. So it's a study long and hard to come to conclusions in these very serious issues. Again, it's true in all areas of life. If you have a very serious issue with a spouse, you want to study long and hard, read books about it, what's his background, what's her background, what are their psychological underpinnings, what are their decisions, and that's worthwhile. Because then you say, oh, that's the man I met. Oh, that's the woman I married. Whatever it may be. Whatever insecurities I may have. Not having money, having money, whatever it may be. So in that context, when you know yourself, have analyzed your beliefs, understand who your personality is, the broader depth of who you are, then you come to the table with a little more insight as to why you say what you say. Very, very important, right? So our issue over here is, what do the sources say about the state of Israel? That's what we care most about, right? We're going to look at some of these sources, our mutual sources, the Gemara itself, we are going to give a very fair reading to see if, this, if these sources support or do not support the state of Israel. Right? We're going to quote their sources. Why? Because the first lesson in good communication with somebody who disagrees with me about a particular topic is, quote, seek to understand first. Understand the other person's position. Seek to understand and then, once you understand the other, you could seek to be understood by the other, you hope. And you hope that leads to a win-win position. If you seek only to make yourself understood first, you're setting up barriers. So you could say to the person in question, I want to understand you first. With an honest, open heart. Why do you hate to spend money? Right? Fair. I think about it and we analyze it and insecurities and vulnerabilities and who knows what I experienced when I was a youth and, and, and everything else like that. So I, because of your attempt to understand me, I'm open about it 
chances are I'm going to try to understand you more so why you need that XKE Jaguar right and I'm going to I'm going to because you're the way human beings work if you want to understand me then I want to understand you as well especially if there's love in this context so seek to understand the other then seek to be understood communication that hopes to achieve a mutual understanding and a better relationship means that we have to seek to understand the other as well as the right thing to do now sometimes it doesn't always work that way meaning that I may try to seek to understand the right wing's rejection of the state of Israel I'm willing to bet they're not going to try to understand me they don't care they don't want to know they just that me no, 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 I am. I'm sorry. It's very unfortunate. It's, it's okay. It's not okay, but you can almost let them believe what they believe. They want to, but to be so outward about it. Yeah. When you go to the Israeli Day Parade and you see them with the Palestinians, you're gonna go, my God. What do you do about that? I mean, there's nothing you can do, but it's just so upsetting. Yes. Yeah, Right along with us. That's right. Correct. It weakens the fabric. Well, because they feel that they want to know. They have the best of the United States. They feel that's part of their message. You know, it's interesting because we could even try to look at something positive over here and try to find the good in this. We can't do it because we don't feel it's not our hearts. But what's the good about this? Let the world know that we're democratic people of Israel, that there are people with different opinions, and their opinion shall be heard, and they want to publicize it. Okay. We, we, there's a peace movement in the Jewish people as well for all things, and that's good. Is it a Palestinian peace movement? No. They get shot at people if you say the wrong word. So that is a quality of to our community, the broader community. So if they say that, we understand it. It hurts. It's painful. It's unfortunate. On the other hand, it's, there's some good to it as well. At least the pastor say, you know, not all Jews are alike. It's good to present a diverse position because that way nobody can lump us all together. That's true too. Okay. But some fair might be able to say, look, Jews have differing opinions. And that could be good. Okay, let's see. Let's raise the question. You don't think we should, like, look united to the world? Yeah, there's something important about looking united as well. I don't disagree with you. Yes, there's something very important about looking united. But on the other hand, they have it's a right not, to this. Like thing. for example, the Jews are looked at as one big family, right? right. Like That's if right. I have an argument with my husband, I keep it in my house. I don't publicly right. announce it on the street. Right. Correct. Which is appropriate. Again, I'm just looking for the good. Sometimes, let's say in your example, if you um, called five people about it, and then your husband found out, or vice versa, and that made him understand the other person's your position. Let's say because you said you called his best friend. Let's say. So his best friend says, look, Izzy, what's wrong? You have a wonderful wife, she's great, and she has this thing that she burns rice on Tuesdays. <laughs> okay, don't like Tuesdays. Tuesdays. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't have the pot? Which is, was that a pot? Is that a pot? There's a pot story over here. I'm going to change it. Sticky, clumpy rice. I always get sticky, clumpy rice with a hay slice of cake. My kids, everyone's, my kids say Friday night. Look at this. Last Shabbat. Last Shabbat, yeah. We had Yachad, we had Yachad over here. So Yachad did, did a whole big thing on her birthday. It was very nice. Yeah, Yachad did it. It was very cute. Yeah, cake. So anyway, so it's funny. My kids always tell Emily, how come you can't make rice like Grandma Doris? Like my mother makes Syrian rice. No, it's shiny. It's, it's oily. Oily. Oil. 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 And Emily's trying rice. So now, if you got that great pot, okay, now, he may not have heard of this great pot. She has a secret day. says, you know, my mother's great rice. Why? She has a great pot. <laughs> the great wife as well. See, so in that in that in that way, so sometimes letting the message out is good. In some cases, some situations. So if the Palestinian sees is not united, maybe they look at us differently. I'm looking for the good. Sometimes it's a person that's not appropriate. So you have to balance it. 
United Front versus them seeing a more diverse people might be appropriate, may not. We have to analyze that. Where do we, where do we gain, where do we lose from that? Yeah, exactly. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. As negative. I'm very, so I'm very moved when, I'm, I'm amazingly moved to tears, literally, when I hear senators or congressmen support us. Yes. Joseph Biden this morning was great, and Luger was great from Illinois. I said, what are they supporting us for? I'm amazed. I'm amazed. You're right. I mean, I know that Arafat's a terrorist that kills children and women and everything else. But now they know. When they say, look, let's call a spade a spade. He's a terrorist. I, I'm so thrilled by that. I'm so, wow, you guys got it. You see clearly. Okay, that's another step along the way. Yes, we do. Yes. I'm sorry, yes. One Shapiro who went to he went to the Palestinian he went to the camp yeah. That's a real Yes. And I'm thinking, I mean, I was, I mean, I was so sick to the core of me. That was my first reaction. Yes. And then all the death threats to the terrorists, and now they don't want to. That's even stupid. Death threats to terrorists are stupid. It's terrible. What do you do? I mean, he needs education. What does he know? Right. <laughs> right. But it's education. I mean, if you, if, what's his background? What does he know? I have no. No, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to judge him. I don't know whether he's self-hating or not. But I want to know. Do you know what Arafat's all about? Have you read the newspapers? Does that mean you know what it's about? You may not know. He's killed. Arafat has killed children. You know what? You know what's amazing is. It's amazing to me that. Innocent civilians dying war, whoever they may be, I cry over it. Every woman, every man who's innocent, I cry over that. No matter what your race, religion, or people, that is necessary. We killed of the Taliban bombings. We killed the people, and I'm sorry, I'm sad, I'm hurtful, and we should apologize. On the other hand, when you target a little innocent child in your gun sights and kill that, that's perverse. A three or two, and they do it all the time. So that's terror. Right before here, I was on the, I was on Jerusalem Post. They had an interview Larry. Spoke to the queen of Yes, she's on and the And they said, they said it's horrible what she said. It's real. I know. No, it wasn't. No, no, no. He's a new guy. Oh, the new guy's lying. Right. So they killed the one thing that I caught out of it was she was saying it's terrible when it's supposed to be Palestinians. Kill it. Jordan killed the Palestinians. Did Larry King say that? No. He doesn't know that. You're right. I had Jordan. They killed Palestinians. Thousands. Ten thousands. So you have to understand. They don't watch say that. It. You're watching CNN. CNN is owned by Ted Turner. Who is no, it's owned by Saudis. reject Israel. This is mainly based on one source. The source from the Gemara Ketub, we don't have time really now to go to the exact Gemara source, but I'll relate to it to you. Open up your Chumashim to page 1013. Page 1013. Got it? Shida Shirim? 1013. Shida Shirim. It's a very strange source, a very odd source for me to quote right now. 
And yet that's very important because we want to evaluate the source. And when we want to know that any predispositions over here is an honest reading of the source, right? 10.13. Here we have Shira Shirim, which is about a lover and his loved one. Right? She seeks him and he seeks her. And it's really about Hashem and the Jewish people. Okay? So all that we have. Look at chapter 8 on 10.13. And we look at verse 4. Right? We look at the beginning of um, the chapter. Oh, that you were like my brother who sucked my mother's breast. I would find you outside. I would kiss you and they would not despise me. I would lead you and I would bring you to the house of my mother. Look at me. I would give you to drink. This is the woman saying to her lover. I would give you to drink some spiced wine, some juice of my pomegranate. His left hand would be under my head and his right hand would embrace me. I adjure or command you, O doors of Jerusalem, why should you awaken and why should you stir up the love until it is desirous? An oath is taken over here. Remember this is between a lover and a loved one, but really between Hashem and the Jewish people. It says this a number of times in Shira Shirim. Hashem says to the Jewish people, I make you take an oath. Here's one context. There are other contexts over here throughout the entire entire work, which we're not going to go through all of them. But each time, it's a love-lover context. Right? Love-lover. And you may want to read this the way the rabbis did, which is what? Hashem, Jewish people, take an oath. Take oath about what? So what does this really mean? Good, excellent, but what does this really mean? Don't disturb the love until it's really time. Leave it alone. So this by saying, don't go exactly. So now, so now the Gemara Ketuvot, which is the rabbi's reading of this, <laughs> say that there are three oaths that were taken in this book Shira Shirim. Three oaths that were taken. One is Jews, you cannot all go up to Jerusalem. Two, Jews do not rebel. Three, non-Jews don't oppress the Jewish people. So Satma would read this text and say, wow, this Gemara reading. So you have two levels. First, my text. And then the Gemara, the way the Gemara interprets the text. So Gemara is going to say that I don't care what the text really says over here about lover and lover. This means, the way the Gemara tells us that it means, which is what? Don't go up to Jerusalem. Don't have ingathering exiles. Don't Jews en masse go up, number one. Number two, don't rebel against the non-Jewish world, and number three, non-Jewish world, don't oppress the Jews. Those are three oaths, which translates into a political philosophy of passivism. Be passive, not active. Just wait. Who took these oaths? These oaths were given to us? Yeah, Hashem made us swear. So we, the Jews, according to the way the Gemara reads this. But none of that was really happening. Well, let's analyze it exactly. Hold on. We're going to analyze it in a minute. Yeah. Um, if you, it's, it's a good point, difficult point, because if I see this homiglaz pshat in quotes, and now you're running into the very murky area of what pshat and what's tarash, and who's reading into it. Tarash means I read into my text. Pshat means I take it out of my text, right? And that sometimes gets very, very difficult to really see what's within the text, pshat and coming out of it. Don't eat milk and meat. Pshat over there is don't eat milk and meat. So it says. Know what it says is, do not see a goat in its mother's milk. I never did that in my life. <laughs> but I have, you know, once in a while I cheat. So I what? what? So it doesn't say don't cook it. it doesn't say just don't see, don't don't boil a, a goat's milk. But we, we can't have any benefit from it. We can't eat it. We can't even cook it. It's on the pshat. So what's where the pshat and what the rabbi says the pshat is a very difficult issue to really uncover sometimes. So now if we say that we're only going by the clear text pshat, call it in quotes then what is really about? A love and a lover which is very sensuous, all about, very romantic, about body parts that are very distinguished. It's really uh, interesting. But only with God and Jewish people, as I mentioned over here, once mentioned over here. Where is it, who, who, where is it that the rabbis. The rabbis. The rabbis of the, of the Mishan Gemara. Of the Mishan To the extent Before where... Before that, this was just, this is what? Well, it was a love story, certainly. Somebody wrote it as a, wrote it as a love story. But that maybe been his intent. You read a poem, any poem you read, right? any poem you read, and you raise the question, <clears throat> is that poem what's in front of me? Would I read into it or what the author intended? Same exact question. Any poem you want to read. Before Mishnah, what was it? 
there might have been an oral history as to how to interpret it. The Mishnah is the first written history. There might have been an oral the way, you know, let's say the first rabbi, and they, it's written on, let's say, 11, 10, 13, 14, 9, 16 to 9, 22. So he wrote it. And he may have given an oral, and he wrote this really, wow, and if you read this in English, it's very sensuous. Movie lips and formed bodies and everything else. Incredible, right? So Shalom says, so maybe he wrote it, and he had his whole class in front of him, 300 people. What are you talking about, Shalom? This is, I'm red, I'm in, it's x-ray, what are you doing over here? He says, I read it, I wrote it this way to stimulate your thought. What do you think it's really all about, he says to them. What could it be about? About God and the Jewish people. This is where Hashem jumps over mountains to bring the Torah to Jewish people. Because what's the Torah really all about? The Torah really is about, about a love of between God and Jewish people. And we had a Ketubah. What was the Ketubah? Torah. What was the Hopah? The mountain under which the Jews, under which the Jews stood. We have a Hopah, we have a Ketubah, and we have love. An unbreakable, unshatterable love between God and the Jewish people. Fantastic. He wrote this. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. What did he do? They didn't have VCRs or Intelligence or, or uh, HMAX? Was it HBO? Or? This is HBO. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is not prime time. <laughs> you hit it on the head. But he gave a running commentary with it, and he used it as any good teacher would to stimulate discussion. You go with this into the high school, you love every kid's attention. Grab attention. Of course not. Why do you think? Uh, it's, a, it's an amazing context. I might, I would not even encourage you to read it. Read a word, but I would. <laughs> I obviously blushed more readily than she blushes. <laughs> right, it's marriage class. Why do you think well, the series can be read every Friday night? Every Friday night, read it. We read it. Well, Friday night you don't have any women in school. We have women at home. Well, we try to. Yeah. It's an interesting, I mean, it's an interesting question. It's an interesting question. Because they're reading it as love between God and Jewish people. Now wait, so let's get back to this. So, so again, Shalom War, read it back to the original statement. Maybe Shalom War really taught this, this way. It was a great stimulating discussion. So it was a fantastic. So going back to that, that oral part of the presentation came back, or nobody wrote it down, but it was always known. So 200 years later, somebody read it and says, what is this all about? So he said, oh, Shalom War explained it. It's about love between the God Jewish people, and it's a, such a powerful image to the extent where in the Mishnah, Rabbi Akiva, this is one of the books that the rabbis want to ignore, to bury. It's too scary. Because what if you read it without getting the commentary? Right? So people were very upset about it. So the rabbi said, you know, there's three books in the Bible that we have to bury. So nobody understands that. Kohelet, Shira Shirim, and Yehezkel. For different reasons. Really I'm sorry? That really is undermining yeah, because not everybody's going to classes. So then we'll do, maybe we'll do privately underground. But we, most people are not going. They read this. They go, wow, like Rita said, wow. Which is an interesting comment about you. Right, right. Because you read a lot of stuff like that. Yeah, we also had Mark Twain, and it was kind of, you know, don't always take everything that it is, and it's this and that. And well, depending on who your teacher was, they should have asked the right questions, which is, what is this really all about? Right, well. How could God, this, Moses, why is it a holy book? Right. So now, this is the book. Right, it's a whole different story, correct. Okay, wait. Now, Rabbi Akiva at the end of the day said what? Rabbi Akiva at the end of the day says, Rabbis, you're thinking now, debating the question, as to bury this book. No, that's not wasn't their issue. We have to educate. Our role is to educate. So it's going to make this may better education by censoring it, by burying it. Then fine. We care about. We don't care about open intellectual liberal education. We care about making Jews Jewish by making people aware. So if you read this and get the wrong message, I won't tell anybody to read this because we get the wrong message. Most of Tanakh they get they get the wrong message from. So I'm concerned about that. If you're going to read one hour night, read Tanakh. No, because you get the wrong message. You're not reading with the teacher. You're not going to classes. That's, so that's a serious point. So I understand the rabbis. Vikva says, Rabbis, one second. I'll tell you. Kol Sifre Tanakh Kodesh. Every book of the Bible is holy. Shira Shirim is Kodesh Kodashim, the holy of holies. The major book. Extraordinary that he said that. Because it's really about God's love for the Jewish people. And that is to be so intimate. 
It's a way to understand God's love for people. It's a way to understand man's love for woman and woman's love for man. It's a brilliant statement. So he's saying, don't throw the baby out the bathwater. Keep the book. As Bobby said, keep the book. Don't censor it. People will get the message eventually when they come to classes. And some may get the wrong message. Okay, we're willing to live with There's some wrong message. Why? Because what? eventually, we can't bury this book. We can't lose this book. It's too holy. Holy of holies. Right? So now we have a book. You know the commentary. The, the rabbis say the commentary in the Gemara is talking about don't rush up to Jerusalem. Right? Don't run up to Jerusalem. Don't rebel. And non-Jews don't pursue the Jews. That's, the, that's what it means. Okay? However, the, the, Sean, sorry? Because we're going to stay and live in, amongst the Goyim in Europe and Spain and wherever else we live. Who wants us to do that? Wait, so, wait, so, right, so God makes them take an oath. Yes. Yeah, for the non Jews. Yes. Two oaths for us, one oath for them. No, yes, 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 but when the rabbis interpret liberally, yes, yes, so we get it together. I mean, even to the extent, in chapter 7, chapter 7 is interesting, if you look at the first line on 1012, page 1012, chapter 7, what does that mean? First, literally, right? Return, return, O Shulamit, return, return, let us gaze upon you. Now, that was the, the command almost. What will you see the Shulamit as in the dance of the two camps? It's a very highly ambiguous text. But Salavetchik explained this as the non-Jewish world says to the Jews, Shulamit is the maiden, the Jewish people, the lover. And the non-Jewish world says to the Jews, come back to us, assimilate, be one with us. Look at the very strange historical trends where non-Jews both said to the Jews, don't think you're so different, special, or omnipotent. Become one with us. Assimilate. Right? We've always been blamed for not assimilating. Everyone always wants to assimilate. On the other hand, they hate us for assimilating. They hate us for being one with them. They're afraid of us. They don't want us to be part of their world. They throw us out. They throw us out, and they try to embrace us. It's a very strange historical trend that we have to endure as Jews. We're both told to get out. We're both assimilated. In Europe, in a thousand years time, we were thrown out of every major European country and invited back three times. Italy... Friend, anyway, thrown out, invited back. So they needed us. So there's a love-hate relationship between the Jews and the non-Jewish world. So now, Rabbi Selecht's interpretation of here is that, I, that we, Hashem says to the, non, to the non-Jew, what will you see in the Shulamit? Why do you really want to come back and assimilate it to you? They're saying, should come back to us. We want to embrace you. You'll never understand the Jewish people. What do, will you see in the Shulamit? What do you want her for? As in the dance of the two camps. There's two camps over here. Jew and non-Jew, you'll never understand who the Jew really is all about, right? So, yes, this is a, this is both to the Jewish people as well as to the non-Jewish world. Three oaths, okay? That's what we have over here. Now, yeah, please. They're throughout the text. There's actually mentioned a number of times, but we don't have to really go through all of them. Um, see it quickly over here. Look at page ten, eleven. One page before, 10, 11, verse 8. Now, the first verse 7 is at the, when she was still in her, um, looking for, looking for stage, she's still looking for her lover. The watchmen who patrolled the city found me, they hit me, they wounded me. The non-Jews hurt me. So what happens then? Verse 8. I, again, take an oath, O daughters of Jerusalem. If you find my beloved, what will you tell him that I am lovesick? So it's another context. But there's three of these oaths that we took. Is everybody clear on that? Yeah, but I have a question. Okay. Okay. The non-Jewish people are supposed to be taking an oath on our Jewish text. Yeah. Well, remember, the, first of all, with the rabbis who said this, they in a Christian society, they text as well. The Christians see this as holy as well. Okay, but they're not interpreting it the same That's way correct. as the rabbis are. Right. How are they supposed to take an oath that they don't, Good. that they don't even know they're supposed to be taking? Correct. And how are we supposed to rely on them and take correct. an oath? Correct. Good point. So now you have to re- let's analyze. Well, history has shown that they have I can have five. I can have five more. Sorry, Ellen. What is the rabbis that were writing this? Yeah. What? When were they? Probably post Bar Kokhba revolt. Third in Israel, third or fourth century after the Common Era. Now you're getting one step ahead of me, right? So we, we understand the oaths here, and we understand the text. What it says here. 
number one. We also understand the, the way the rabbis interpreted this, right? Except it for a few minutes, okay? The Quran gives us the question of the oath. We understand the pshat, the dinash, what the rabbis are saying. Let's try to understand this context. Why do you think the rabbis are saying this right now? They want to understand your point. Yeah. Failure is too light of a word. It was horrendous, disastrous. So here we have um I agree. So now here you have a horrendous situation. Hundreds of thousands of Jews are massacred by the Romans. Jews revolted for the third time. Hadrian's the emperor. Hadrian's the emperor. Jews revolted in 70 after the Common Era, 118 after the Common Era in Alexandria. Now 132, they're, they're saying Mashiach is coming, Barakhwaza Mashiach, they're revolting again. Hadrian says, I must get rid of the snat off my nose. I gotta kill him, destroy him, wipe him out. What's the source of Change the name of Jerusalem to another name. There's no more Jerusalem. Jews can't go to Jerusalem. Remember, they get, they congregate, they gather together in Jerusalem three times a year. Hundreds of thousands of Jews. So he says, change the name. No longer some place is called officially legally Jerusalem. Hello, Ellen. Okay. But rather change the name and call it Capitula Ailuna. A nice, good Latin name. No more Jerusalem. Furthermore, I'm going to change the name of this whole place, which is called Judea, into what? Palestine. Why Palestine? Because there were no longer any Palestinians over there. No, there are dead people. Jews are a dead people. Sorry? Pilishtim. Wiped out. Three to five hundred years earlier. Answer that. Seven hundred years before that. Yes. The Assyrians destroyed the Palestine. The Assyrians from up north of Israel destroyed the Pilishtim or the coastal cities. So there's no such thing as Palestinians. Pilishtim. So therefore, you Jews are a dead people. This Palestine, there's no such thing as Jews or Judea ever again. 132 to 135, after the Bible, Revolt. Hadrian persecuted the Jews and uprooted the Juda Judaism and destroyed all of the people of Israel. It was a horrible moment in our history. Horrible moment. The brutality, which we understand. Again, we threaten the Roman Empire. Now, of course, two points. One is, why did Abiyah Kivas think he could win? He promoted this revolt. Why do you think he could win? Hashem behind him. Not only that, more important than that. No, not really. Sorry. It was studies of the Chobam ben Okay, good. And what great historical model did he have to look to, where a small little guerrilla band destroyed a powerful empire, the Maccabees, which were about three years earlier. The Maccabees were small. You doubt even a small group of people destroyed the mighty Greek Empire. So that spurred up Yekivan. Guerrilla warfare works on foreign territory. Brilliant strategist. He's right. We lost in Vietnam. Same reason. And what do you think motivated Hadrian? Back to the same point. I gotta destroy these people because they can destroy me. If I don't destroy them once and for all, they can destroy me. Obviously, they destroyed the Greek Syrian Empire. The Greek Syrian Empire lost to the Jewish people. They're strange people. They're persistent. They're energetic. They're dynamic. And they're willing to die for their country. I can't win this battle I really throw the full force of my arms at them. Interesting parallel. America lost in Vietnam. We had 500,000 troops over 20 years and we lost, we lost, we lost. 1991, Gulf War. What is the Powell Doctrine? The Powell Doctrine. Throw everything you have at them, destroy them completely, and get out in two months. Bomb. Heavily, 1991, destroy Iraq. Don't risk one human life. This is a very nice way of waging war. Vietnam, we learned the lesson. We were nice, we courted them, we this, 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 this and, and the Viet Cong shot us from the back, and the Vietnam shot us from the front, and we lost. We lost 55,000 people. A little bit different. Yeah, a little bit different, correct. Yeah, correct, whatever the reason may be. It has to be analyzed on its own, but correct. 
So here we have the power of Akshat 91, we learned our lesson. Destroy, bomb, carpet bombing. Civilians die carpet bombing. No. I'm sure he said no. He knew Yiddish, yeah. as you know. He knew Yiddish from the Bronx. Said no. What am I going to do about it? Okay, it has, has to happen. And it worked. It worked because he destroyed it so heavily that when our troops went in, what did the Iraqis do? They were so traumatized by tons and tons of bombs for months. They ran away. We won that. Like this. I think, I think it's true that we killed more Americans through friendly fire than they killed us. A dozen people. Shame, shared. We cry over every single one that dies. Every single one that dies, we cry over. So too in Afghanistan. Carpet bomb destroyed. Civilians? No. What are you going to do? That's the way it is. That's the way war is. We're certainly not going to risk an American life to save a civilian life over there. We're not going to play fair. Parallel to Israel right now. It's a very painful story. Because they're trying to save civilian lives. They're not bombing out these buildings. They're warning you. Leave the buildings where I bulldoze. We're warning you. Leave, 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 leave. They leave. They don't leave. We're trying to save lives. We're the only country that ever do that. Why is everybody saying that? You know, where's the Israeli PR machine? They are okay, saying it, but it's not airing it. Well, let's just do it more. <laughs> Correct. Well, it's a double standard. They don't That's right, yeah. So now let's go one more step. So therefore, based on what we said before, Ellen, right, the rabbis now are not interested in an active revolt any longer. One more revolt, we are dead. The rabbis say, you know, let's interpret this text in a way that's going to dissuade Jews from rebelling. So here's a, we have a great it's an oath. It's a context. It's love. God says He loves you, not because He actually loves you. It's a brilliant, brilliant interpretation. God loves you, and therefore He's saying over here, what should you do? You should not, re not rebel. Wait to Mashiach. I'll bring down a bit of a dash and a fire from the heavens. You wait for me. Wait for me. Mashiach will come. I'll bring the Mashiach. Don't rebel. Don't go up to Jerusalem. You say, what Mashiach? What does that guarantee? Me security. And the non-Jews will take an oath. In quotes, they won't persecute you. So you're going to sign or not going to sign? God made him take an oath. You're going to sign or you're not going to sign? Do sign. Metaphorically sign. Good. So to this very day, we have that same position. Satma holds by this. There's a halakhic statement. Halakhic statement that we are still bound by. Do right? they feel we're being persecuted because we're in Jerusalem? Yeah, they could interpret that as well. Yeah, absolutely. We're doing the wrong, we're calling the wrong shot. All this is wrong. We're in Jerusalem before we're supposed to be. That's why they, they can feel that's why we're being persecuted. That's why we're being persecuted. Well, we were mostly before that anyway, actually. But, but, but yeah. that's part of it also, absolutely. Yeah, we're doing everything wrong. We're trying to bring Mashiach, all the miracles to place. The devil, they would say, because so many miracles happen, except the miracles done by the devil. They say in their works, the devil, Satan, did these acts of miracles to fool you Jews. You fell into his trap. You thought it's Hashem, but you're the devil, and therefore you're losing and getting persecuted. That's that. That's that, right? Look. Yes. Why would we reject their opinion? Good. That's the question. I got it. Fantastic question. That's my next point. Right. So now, do we understand? No, you're right. That's my next point. Hold on. Do we understand where they're coming from? That you're saying you do. It's a text. It's a statement. Correct. It's there. And we took the oath. We took the oath. And for thousands and two thousand years, actually, we lived by this. Jews didn't rebel. Jews didn't go up. They were very passive politically. They didn't go up to Jerusalem. They did everything right. We really had it going right for us. Right? We understand their position. The question now comes to Celeste's point. Why do we reject their rejection based on this source? How do we respond? Yeah. Okay, hold on. First question. Yeah. 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 Then we'll get back to this point. There's other issues that we're going to talk about at the end, but we'll get at least, um, let me just go this, then we'll actually continue if you like. How do we respond? First question. Is this a halachic or a midrashic statement? Okay, good. So now I read this statement. I say this is midrash. It's a nice rabbinic interpretation. It's great. It was meant in its historical context. And meant to create a hashkafa of political passivity, pacifism. Did not mean to endure for a thousand or two thousand years. Rabbis today might say exactly the opposite. Rabbis today might say that if those rabbis we have today, these rabbis in the Kemara, wow, you have an opportunity now of establishing a state and saving Jewish lives. 
This is meant to do what? Save Jewish lives. Nowadays, you need political activism to say, it's okay, to save Jewish lives. So do it. The very same rabbis who said this whole entire philosophy of pacifism, pacifism might say today, activism, save Jewish lives. Number one. So they may change their tool. Okay, they don't, we don't know that they do. Okay, so now the question, is this halakhic or midrashic? So I see it as midrashic, not as a halakhic statement, point number one. It seems more like midrash, like a rabbinic interpretation. It's not in my text, in any really even near fashion. And I'm not, I don't have a predisposition to this as well. And you know why I don't have a predisposition as well? Because I have five other answers. So you'll see in a minute. Like, you know, even which way. I have plenty. Yeah, Bobby? No. Oh, in a measure. But that's a different issue. Not, the last thing is a different story. We're not talking about establishing the state of Israel, having an army, rebelling against the non-Jewish world by going there. Let me go on because I have two more points to make. Okay? So, number one, it seems like a Madrash non-Halakhic statement. Clearly, Chazal read into our text. They had a good political agenda and they were right for doing it and it worked fine. Number two, it's not quoted in most poor scheme. The Ram doesn't quote this statement as a Halakhic statement. So it's probably a Midrashic statement. Yes, there is a few poskim who do in fact quote it as halakha and therefore binding. So they say, we have our poskim seen as halakha. You know what I do. So what are you going to say to me now? Right? We would argue next that, hold on, there were three oaths mutually intertwined over here. Correct? Did they not break over the last 2,000 years and most notably in the Holocaust their side of the bargain? Absolutely, nobody would question that. Therefore, even if you hold that it's halachic, since they violated their part of the bargain, we are not bound to the other oaths. What? That's the wrong It's not wrong, because the original was formulated as a contract. Breach of contract. But the people didn't sign the contract. That's like, that's like them, that's wait, like wait, the... The priests asking us or telling us we have a contract to accept their guide. Either you know they didn't sign it or they did sign it. But they didn't. They don't. They didn't okay, sign on to it. So then, it was oh, not a if they didn't sign it, then we're not bound by it from the very beginning. Exactly. Why okay, but assuming that Hashem says they signed it, like with all these, however they read this text, assuming they signed it. I mean, not literally, not physically. Thing, I mean, I think the whole thing sounds ridiculous because you're Agreed. asking somebody to take an oath that they don't believe in our rabbis, they don't follow our rabbis, you, they, they don't even know that they're supposed so to be So why the rabbi say it? We, we rabbi said it in order to convince us not to, not to revolt. Okay. okay. So we said the rhetoric end of it. But even assuming that we look at this um, not literally, the rabbis are really trying to communicate a point to make us feel secure, number one, as you mentioned, but also in my response to Satmar, you say they, that Hashem made the oath, and you see it literally. So, so, so I'm still going to argue with you because it literally they were, they broke their part of the bargain. They didn't remember it. They says that they did it. So in my discussion with them, don't you see they broke their part of the argument? Yeah. Right. So the answer is yes. So. So we would say for sure not. It's a th- it's an intertwined contract. Okay, this is but if God commands the Jewish people to do something, and God commands the and, it's, and it was set up as an interactive, yes, interactive, intertwined. But how many people follow the Noahide laws through testing it? We as Jews still follow our Ten Commandments all the time. Whatever to follow our Ten Commandments. What does that mean? Does that mean that we're not beholden to them anymore? To the non-Jews? No, to the Jews, because not everyone follows everything that God says. This is different. All we're saying over here in this, yes, in this limited context, there's an intertwined oath. The way Hassan understands this, we may we say it's not pshat even. We say it's not halachic. But so far, you say it's pshat, you say it's halachic. We're saying it was an intertwined oath that we all took, all together, hard nice, so to speak, or thereafter, whatever. And you broke it, so we're not obligated. Now wait, 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 wait. So that's the third thing we say. Then you broke your part. We didn't. We have to. We could break our part. I mean, that's fair. It's a contract. But that's what the Ten Commandments are. I get the Ten Commandments. Hold on, we're wrong. But it's a contract. Yeah, I understand. It legally sounds very right. We have a contract. You broke your hand. Am I bound by the other part of the contract? Yeah, but it's not a contract we're making that's the non-Jewish It was. God and the non-Jewish world. Three way contract. You have a contract with the broker, the seller, the buyer. And if one falls apart, they all fall apart. Right. Right. Is, is that right? I mean, one falls on the other part. Anyone breaches when the contract is no one void. No one void. Furthermore, one second. Furthermore, 
and equally significant. Is it not the case that in fact we didn't revolt against any nation? The UN said this is our right. They said we could do this. Right. So we didn't revolt. What's the difference? The UN so says at the end of the day, hey, I'm, on your side. I'm, I'm not, I have questions now about you. The UN said, Jews, you could have this state. No buts. Jews voted, the world voted on it. 33 to, right, we didn't, we didn't vote at all. That's right, exactly. 33 nations of the world body said, Jews can go and have a piece of this land. So wait, that's not the point. So if that's the case, if that's the case, that's the point right now. It's not the point right now. So what we're saying over here is that if the UN, in fact, allowed us to inherit the state, go back to the state, we're rebelling. They're saying do it. That oath was originally, don't rebel. We didn't rebel. They said, silver platter, take it. So I don't do anything wrong. I'm not against the state. I'm not against the non-Jews. Even if they didn't violate their part of the agreement. They have a right, and as any contractual agreement, to say, here, take the house. So it's maybe $200,000. Take the house. I, I, don't need, I don't want any money from you. I don't need your money. Take the house. It's yours. Do I have a right to do it in a contract? Obviously. But the contract says, I have to pay you $200,000. You're going to say to me, I don't want your money. Take the, I don't care. Just take, take the house. Fine. I could do that. I could go beyond it. And even if you say, no, no, it says it. It says it doesn't say it. Here's the money. So every court in this world will say, you don't want the money. I don't. You don't. I don't want to give you. I don't give the money. You don't want my money, or whatever the case may be, or whatever, however it works out. Fine. So they said, Israel, go home. It's okay. So the oath is no longer binding upon me. If you let me off the hook from the oath, it's no longer binding. So, therefore, our rejection, the rejections at this point of all those rejectionists people, we're on very strong grounds. Is halachic to the midrash. Who's the Yeah, oh, this is it. Oh, that's the, that's the first major point. That's it. Because it's not even... Well, again, okay, wait, yes. No, 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 wait, but they see it as real. Did we understand... Let's go back to the point. It does not We're finished one minute. Did we understand the sources? We, we, we tried to understand them well. We think it's weak. Let's go back to it again, from their point of view. For them, it's a halakhic statement that actually is still binding. And maybe they have a privilege over here. Maybe not. I don't know. Interesting question. But okay, look on the side. We read the sources. We came to our conclusions. Let's go back and understand them again. Is it really weak? They see it as a halakhic source. They see Gemara as the interpreter. Okay? It's halakhic source. They have one or two commentators say that it is a halakhic source. And they see that, well, the persecutions that they did to us was not, let's say, your position was not dependent one upon the other. And if they, even if they persecute us, they say this also on us are still binding, right? So they say that also. And even though you went granted that they would say what? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's not theirs. Who cares if the UN every single if there's one they may argue they may argue they may argue that even though the UN voted for it, only thirty three there were about six rejections and about eighteen abstentions. No, no, no. Well, they gave it to us right. us to fail. Whatever. That's not the point. We don't care what they give us. Their Sama's going to argue and say that you only have 33 positive votes. You, only, you still want to get... Right. They need 100%. Oh, well, you didn't get it. That's irrelevant. That was the contract. That was the contract. That's what we're bound by. So now Sama's going to say it's halakhic, it's binding, though they persecuted us, and the UN was not, not 100%. So therefore, you're rebelling, and you're trying to bring Mashiach, and you're wrong. That's their side. We disagree on every account. Okay? There's I'm sure there are people that had ideas yeah. to try to think about it. Sure. They want to build it. The big story. There are people that now study. No. Whatever. Okay, I'm going to end now, and there's three or four other reasons that we want to talk about. Sorry? There are three or four other more minor, that's the major halakhic issues. There's three other issues that we want to talk about 
We'll do that next week. Same time, same place. Everybody's around. Yeah. Love to have you. Thank okay. You. There's going to be a very nice program at the Park Avenue Synagogue. We had a very nice program last night, by the way. Yeah. Really great. Yomah's old program. It was great. We had a great speaker. We had a great. Sorry, what? Yeah, I have it. I have it. I have it. It was a great movie that we showed. So I'm sorry that all of you missed it because it was a great program. What did you show? The 150 Year War, which is six hours. It's a great. It's a great thing. In one, I edited it in one hour. It was really great. Um, <laughs> sorry you missed it. Anyway, next. Uh, it's a great program in Park Avenue Ashkenazic Shul. On Atel Kwanim, Jewish record, those people who are trying to build a Manzashul. So this week in the Shabbat, the Tanah, they're going to have a lot of but we can make it very, very nice. Thank you. 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 Thank you.